0: Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal,
1: an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long-form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. David,
0: back in the studio. It's Wednesday again. These Wednesdays are coming thick and fast. I know, they are.
1: And we, we, we've we uh, got a very special guest today.
0: Well, yes. I have been, or we have been trying to get Michael on, or at least um, thinking about getting Michael on for years. Yeah. Um, I remember speaking to Stephen Liu, Pre-pandemic, or maybe it was the pandemic. Yeah. You did an Instagram live with uh, Stephen. I said, "Ah, oh, we've got to get him on the podcast," and we just couldn't get connected. And of course, you couldn't come here, Michael. So here we are, the yeah. king of toxin, or yeah, I'm going <laughs> the king of toxin. Let's not use a brand name. And um, you know, I, I, for the listeners who maybe are not aware of Michael's work, but Michael, you know, as far as I'm concerned, has been pretty much a pioneer on, on par with Gene Carruthers in terms of toxin. Um, I heard about Michael years ago. I had your Botox book, as you called it. Uh, I think we all had your Botox book. You even read the Botox yes. book. Yes, yep. And, um, you know, you've sort of led the way and taught us pretty much everything, particularly off-label, lower face, and sort of unusual uh, uses of toxin. So we're honoured, Michael, to have you. Um, did you want to introduce yourself? I mean, I don't want to do, do you an injustice. So tell us about your background, Michael.
2: Hey, I'm Michael Kane. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York. I grew up in Philadelphia, and I've been squirting toxins <laughs> cosmetically since the summer of '91. Right, '91. Right. I want to thank Australia. I, the Botox book was actually a bestseller down there. There you go. I don't know if you realize it, it hit number nine on the Australian charts. Wow. Jeez that's pretty
1: good that's impressive for you know not a, a sort of like a harry potter novel or something like for something that's <laughs> yeah. sort of very science-based that, that's extremely impressive i do want to know michael what color is your wall behind you because i can't seem to see any paint because all the degrees are on the wall i don't know what color um, your hang it's yeah. Awards. Yeah. all
2: right so that's a little embarrassing but you know patients like that stuff and yeah oh of course you know I, I travel around a lot as you said i'm always in between gigs i just got back last night from Nashville, and I go to Vienna tomorrow. So oh. you're catching me on you know, an in-between day. No, it worked out very well we've with the schedule. very much tonight.
0: appreciate your time, Michael. Thank you. Right. Um, so I don't know where to start this one, but like, let's go back to 91, I guess, because you, you graduated as a plastic surgeon, as, as you've told us. So why did you even dabble with injectables, and particularly back okay. then when no one was doing it?
2: Sure. Well, I was just hanging around in the residence and fellows lounge in my hospital and there's a great oculoplastic surgeon. He's sort of the king of oculoplastics of New York, Richard Lisman. And we'd become friends. We had a patient or two in common and we're just sitting around talking and we're talking about what's new in each other's field. And now this is a little embarrassing, but plastic surgery in 1990, 91, The new things that everyone was talking about were different kinds of chemical peels for the face, and they were strange chemical peels, uh, often using household solvents, (laughs) which is a little strange. right? You would take a peel formula and add a few drops of Lysol, which is a a detergent sort of thing. These weird formulas were sort of all the rage in plastic surgery. What sort of peel are you doing? So that was a little Hmm. embarrassing. And I asked Richard, what's new in ophthalmology and oculoplastics? And he says, did you ever hear of this botulism stuff that you could inject? And I said, no. And he said, and I said, so what does it do? I guess it weakens or paralyzes muscle. Yeah, it relaxes muscle when where you inject it. And so my next question is, well, how long does it last? And I'm thinking you know, depending on what's in there, it's going to last maybe 36, 48 hours or something like that. And he says, well, it lasts a couple of months, Hmm. like three months maybe. And the next thing I said to him, well, you know, well, what about the corrugators and the forehead and the crow's feet? And maybe about 20 seconds later, I said, what about the platysmal bands? (laughs) Because back then they were using it for strabismus, which... Lay people commonly call crossed eyes, which is due to an imbalance of, typically there are six muscles around each eye that allow your eyes to move in the socket, and it was being used for that to try to straighten eyes that weren't aligned well. And sometimes people have a spasm of the muscles around one eye that they can't control, blepharospasm, and it was being used for that. And so it was an ophthalmologic drug, and. He said that's what it was being used for. And, you know, within a minute after him describing that to me, I wanted to find out more about it. And I thought it would have wide ranging cosmetic uses. If you think about the face and it's just part of my background as well, uh, where I did my plastic surgery training, I was with one of the kings of facial reanimation. So when people had a facial nerve injury, they could go get a cross-face nerve graft and try to reinervate that side of the face and get that side of the face moving normally. And so I saw a lot of those patients, admitted them, helped on their surgeries. And what was interesting and what struck me before I heard about this stuff was that when you looked at people with, say, a, a paralyzed face on one side and normally animated face on the other, obviously the paralyzed face does not look so good, right? it just looks odd, does not look good. But if you stop looking at it from 40,000 feet and you just comb down to individual areas of the face, it looks a lot better than the normal side. So the side of the face, it's paralyzed. Well, there's never any horizontal lines on the forehead. There are no crow's feet lines. There's no nasal avial fold and so if you just looked at it, not looking at the whole thing, it's just parts of the face, those parts of the face that were not being animated aged more slowly and looked better. Yeah. And so instantly I thought, well, if you can inject this stuff and you can control it and it lasts for months, well, why wouldn't I put it in those muscles that are doing things that we don't like to the face and slow them down but leaving the rest of the muscles intact so that you would still have sort of a normal expression and that leads to like just another idea you know besides zooming down on the areas and so I started talking about the glabella which was the first area and maybe a little nasalis and maybe a little frontalis in the forehead the orbicularis oculi and the platysma in the neck and some people dimple their chin. And so the mentalis was an obvious one. And the DAOs and the orbicularisaurus. But then is just another idea. You know, there are different groups of muscles in the face that do different things. If if you could relax over a period of years, the muscles that help gravity pull your face down to the floor, I thought that those people I could maybe get them to age much more slowly than if they hadn't had that done besides looking better. So it's a it's a combination of things, and that's why I love injecting toxins. It's an interesting game. Um, It takes a lot of thought. It's not really a simple one, two, three recipe thing, as sometimes it's practiced.
1: I was wondering whether we could just orientate listeners to sort of timelines, because obviously you're doing some innovative work over in New York. You've got Dr. Jean Carruthers over in Canada doing her thing. Where were you guys at the same, like where was she in in terms of her research and discovery with with her husband, Alistair, at the same time that you're doing all this innovative work over in New York? Are you sort of working independently and not really knowing what the other is doing, or is there some sort of collaborative effort going on between the two of you?
2: That is a great question. And for years, we didn't know who each other were. We were working completely independently, doing very much the same thing, maybe ending up in different places. You know, everyone individualizes these things a little bit. But I did not know Alistair and Gene for probably about eight years or so, eight or nine years after I started. So they were doing what they were doing on the West Coast of Canada. I was doing what I was doing on the east coast of the States. Uh, we did not talk to each other. We didn't know each other. I remember I was really disappointed when <laughs> when they published their paper in 1992. I think it was 18 people with frown lines in the glabella. And me, maybe I should have bit off, bitten off a smaller chunk because right then I had about 45 patients, but I was <laughs> thinking of some all-encompassing facial thing, but I'm also a bit of a procrastinator. So definitely Jeannie beat me, Jeannie now and we're all friends, I, I would say, beat me to that first publication. But while we were completely separate, and didn't had no communication with each other for years, there is a weird connection between us. So when I, I'm sitting there and I have this idea after talking to Richard Lisman, and I think this will work well, but I still don't have my own practice. I'm still a fellow in training. Now, for your listeners, a, a fellow is someone who's already completed all the years, and it was seven years of a plastic surgery residency after medical school. But I'm doing an extra year just to get better at things that I thought were lacking in my training. So I was doing the cosmetic fellowship with the facelift kings of the world. Right. So I'm, I'm doing all this surgery all day and I'm injecting in the afternoon. And some things helped me tremendously. And some of the things were just the people that I was around. So I have this idea sitting in the residence room. So the first thing I do is I go and talk to my program director, Bill Nolan. And, you know, he looks at me like I'm a little crazy and says, you're going to inject what? <laughs> and like, well, it's it's botulism, but it's, you know, a very purified form of the protein. There's not, not actually bacteria in there. It's just in the small, minute amounts. And I explain it to him and he says, you know, that sounds that sounds pretty good. So it helps to have good people around you. You have to be a little. Yeah. Did I have a good idea? Yes. Did I work hard to bring it to fruition? Yes. But I was fortunate and that the people around me understood and supported me in doing this. Yeah. And so then, right as I'm walking out the door, he says, You know what? You better run it upstairs to the big boss, you know, (laughs) the department chairman. He says, Because it sounds like it could be a little scary, you know, some maybe we could have some bad things happening. We certainly wouldn't want that with our patients. So, then I go to my mentor, Tom Reese. And for those who don't know, Tom is one of the great aesthetic plastic surgeons of the world of history. He passed away a few years ago. I would consider him my mentor. I was his last fellow that he graduated. And he and Tom Baker started the, aesthetic Society, the American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. So he was the big cheese. Mm. And he was an older man then in his very last year of practice and he got it right away he said i think this can be really big and i said oh yeah i i I think it can be gigantic it's a it's something that may change how we practice plastic surgery and he said all right you've you've got my okay that sounds good and right as i'm walking out of his office door he says you know what I'm gonna retire at the end of this year. <laughs> I don't want some lawsuits or some other problems down the road. I don't wanna dump this on on the new guy who's going to be taking over. So he says, You better run it past him. So I go to Sherelle and I talk to him. And he says the same thing after I, you know, I have to explain it and how it goes. And he says, Well, is there any literature on this? And I said, Yes, there is, just by one person, Alan Scott, who's an ophthalmologist. And he said, all right. He says, here's the deal. You can do this and you can do it with your clinic patients. If after you describe it to them and get full consent, he says, but I want you to read every word Alan Scott has ever written about this stuff. And back then there was no internet. So I could go upstairs <laughs> to my uh, hospital librarian, hospital hospitals had libraries back then and she requested all of Alan Scott's articles which took you know about 10 days or two weeks to get in the mail I read them all and then I started and when I started so not only did I have people supporting me that way but at the time it was very common and this was the facelift mecca of I think the world and so at that time most surgeons not all but most would do a little brow lift with the surgery and the, the brow lift back then entailed an incision that went ear to ear across the top of your head. You would fold down the forehead over the patient's face. And besides lifting the skin, you would actually pluck out and weaken the corrugators, procerus, parts of the frontalis. And some people would even go after the orbicularis oculi. Wow. So believe it or not, my job when I was a fellow, when I had this idea was, you know, my job after the surgeon would mark the patients where the incisions would be, as they were in the room, I would say, oh, can you give me a frown, relax, frown, relax, and I'd draw the frown lines and smile, relax, and I'd draw the crow's feet lines, raise your eyebrows, relax, and I'd draw horizontal lines in their forehead. As soon as they went to sleep under anesthesia, it was my job to inject methylene blue, a little dye into those lines (laughs) so we could find the muscle where it was strongest. And so debulk that muscle and take part of that muscle out. Or sometimes I would just checkerboard it just to slightly weaken the frontalis because you know, uh, toxins are sort of are very titratable. You can bring people back and put in a little more. But when you're doing a surgery like that, you, you can't just go back in and put muscle back or take some more muscle out. So I was doing that all day and most afternoons. And then I would have my afternoon clinic and I would start injecting them with botulinum, trying to mimic what I was getting done in the operating room. And so that was tremendously helpful to me. I mean, it made my learning curve, as there is with any new technology, it, it made it almost flat. I mean, it, it just advanced me so much more quickly than if I weren't looking at those muscles, taking them out and seeing how people moved or working with someone whose big thing was reanimating partially paralyzed faces. So I was fortunate in those ways. Sorry, I sometimes go off on a tangent. That's so funny. the connection, now that we've gone through all that, the connection back to Gene is Alan Scott. So I mentioned Alan Scott. He is the true godfather of all of this stuff. So a little basic history. Ed Chance at the University of Wisconsin and then for the American Department of Defense, um, separated and purified botulinum toxin and so he was the man who did that and he knew Alan Scott and Alan Scott got some from him and Alan first started working on chimpanzees to sort of weaken their muscles and see how it worked in chimpanzees for many years and then he started working on people with blepharospasm again spasms around the eyes or strabismus where the eyes didn't really match up and he started working on chimpanzees around late 70s early 80s and then moved to human beings around 84, 85. And so what, what is the connection? Well, I didn't know this for years, but Gene Carruthers was actually Alan Scott's fellow. Yes, so she nothing told us so. that exists in a vacuum. It's all, <laughs> we're all connected in some strange way. And Alan was a truly interesting man when, when you got to know him. Uh, if, if I if I may go on here a little anecdote sure. about now so I'm I'm in Southern California I'm I'm in Irvine because I'm going to go do some work for the arrogan people who whose drug was Botox the first botulinum toxin released and so this is I'm guessing like late 90s 99 something like that and I was covering for a lot of surgeons I'm a young plastic surgeon in New York I'm working hard this is the first time I was out of New York and five or six years. And so I went a whole day early. I know it sounds rather crazy, but I went nuts. (laughs) I went a whole day early, uh, besides what I was doing with Allergan. And so I couldn't wait to jump in a pool, even though it was kind of cold and in LA, there's zero humidity. So it's kind of really cold. And I'm not a hot tub guy, but I jump in the pool, I'm freezing, I get out and I run into a hot tub. There's nobody out there except for an older couple. We're sitting in the hot tub, and I'm 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 not I'm sort of a natural introvert unless you put me in front of a live microphone, as you can tell, and I can't stop talking. But <laughs> so I'm I'm in this hot tub, and it's sort of weird because there's three people on this giant pool deck, and there's nobody else there, and we're all sitting basically on top of each other. And so the they start talking to me. They're a married couple, and they start talking about their family and their kids and where they're from and they ask me questions and you know I'm, I'm not much of a talker we sat there for about an hour and a half basically telling each other our life stories right just I'm talking to two strangers and the man was very interesting because he his big obsession was building a log cabin <laughs> so and he wanted it in the middle of nowhere now this is a man who wanted to get off the grid before there was a grid right? There's yeah. no grit at all. And he just wanted to get away from it all. And then he says, so um, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I don't know if you've ever heard of this stuff called Botox. And he looks at me and he and he says, why? And I said, well, I'm here for the company that makes it, you know, uh, and with a couple other early adopters and, you know, uh, a lot of people think that it just works on wrinkles and things like that. And yeah, that was that was not me. I was the person that wanted to sort of change the shape of someone's face or slow down aging. And I said, I'm kind of the guy that doesn't worry so much about a little frown line or something, but wants to change everything and slow down the aging of the face. And this elderly gentleman said, you're Michael Caine, aren't you? <laughs> now, this, is, this is kind of freaky, right? I'm, I'm sitting here in, in this pool and don't know who anyone is. And I'm just looking at him and he says, yeah, he says, I know about you. I, I know some of your stuff. And then I, it dawns on me and I said, are you Alan Scott? <laughs> and it was Alan Scott. That's amazing. Who I randomly meet in a hotel hot tub with his wife. And we talked about everything except botulinum toxin for an hour and a half. He uh, he was an amazing man.
0: Wow. Wow. And am I correct in saying he actually passed away this year? Is that correct? I think I saw yes, that.
2: Uh, a little while ago. And sort of true to his nature, um, Alan, you know, uh, I, I got along well with Alan. I prize our conversations we had over the years. We did a few meetings together, but he was not always out and about and didn't respond to things. He was, you know, he was the guy that wanted to live in a log cabin by himself. And as it turns out, when, when we all found out that he had passed away and the New York Times wrote his obituary, he had actually passed away months before then. Oh, wow. So it turns out, you know, he wanted to change the world with botulinum toxin and he wanted to get off the grid. And I'd say he was very successful in both things. Yeah. Because I mean, even when he passed away, we didn't know for a few months. Wow. An I've got story. so
0: many questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just love listening to you, Michael. The, the, the stories and the history always yeah. fascinate me because, you know, we're all in our clinics, we're all sort of doing well and enjoying this amazing product, whatever your choice is. But To understand where it came from, I think, is more interesting. And what fascinated me about what what you said, Michael, and I don't know, you sort of condensed into a few sentences, but your understanding of, you know, relaxing the depressors and maybe enhancing the elevators and maybe even skin quality and all this stuff, it, it seems to have come to you very quickly, but we're even still looking at papers published in 2022 talking about those concepts, like you know, Sebastian cottafano we've had him on, and you know his work's fantastic. And but it, it's all similar stuff to what you've just told mm. us that you recognized thirty years ago. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I would. I'm going to say something now that a friend of mine in the in media always tells me not to say, and because I you know, I, I travel around a lot. I'm uh, until the pandemic, I was in a hotel room maybe 180 nights a year. Wow, um, I you know uh, three out of four years before the pandemic, I flew seven hundred thousand miles a year, Jeez. which is almost a full time job. Um, but I like it, and I like talking about it, and I like teaching it. But when uh, I've been asked a few times, so what's new in botulinum toxin? My standard answer is nothing for about twenty five years. Yeah. Um, I think about 25 years ago, around 96 or so, was when I injected my first salivary gland. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think after that, there probably hasn't been anything new. Now, someone might say, well, you know, let's talk about microtox or dermal toxin. Well, I'm, uh, I'd already presented that botulinum made acne better when it got into the dermis, that it had direct dermal effects. And let's just talk about dermal effects for a second, because that's a little interesting and a little historical as well. So I'm presenting a bunch of botulinum things and it was before PowerPoint. So it's just dual carousel 35 millimeter slides projected and I'm showing some before and afters. And back then, if it was ultra, ultra high tech, you would stop your dual carousel 35 millimeter projectors and pop in a VHS tape and if you had a projector put it on the screen either that or a bunch of tv screens (laughs) that was considered ultra high tech when I was doing this so you could actually see some action going and so I'm presenting in front of plastic surgeons which tend they tend to be a tougher audience than other specialties they're a little rougher on each other and I present these before and afters and I think everything's really good and I'm explaining things and they tore me apart. They, I got some very critical comments and the only thing worse than getting critical comments are getting critical comments and you realize that there's something to those comments and maybe there is a little something wrong that hurts you a little more. And so what they said was that when they looked at some of my photos the before and afters, that in the afters, the patient's skin looked sort of plasticky or shiny <laughs> and a little artificial and not very good. And, you know, uh, so I went and I clicked back on the carousels and they were right. And so, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm on a, a tour presenting about toxin through Southeast Asia, and I show these shiny skin slides and it's part of, you know, you have different stump talks for a while, over 30 years, and this talk was, you know, why you should avoid getting botulinum in your dermis, even though it does make your acne better, it gives you this weird sort of shiny look on the skin. Well, things look different to different eyes, and it affects different skin differently, which is why maybe toxin the skin is not all the rage here in New York or in the States, but in East Asia, it kind of is. So as I'm showing those slides of that shiny skin and I'm thinking they look terrible after thinking they look good, the plastic surgeons in New York tell me they're terrible. I go to Southeast Asia saying, look at how terrible this is. And they said, you know, it looks kind of (laughs) good. And so clearly when you get tox into the skin, it has direct dermal effects. The most obvious is it decreases sebum production and your acne gets better. The other thing is it makes your skin a little shiny, a little different looking than it was before. And to my eye, and with my patients, I see things a little differently and people see different things differently in parts of the world. But I think getting dermal tox in your globella, which can make it shine, I think that's Something I would like to avoid um, in your forehead too. But around your crow's feet, when it does its magic, when it has its effect on the skin, most patients like that effect. Yeah. And so that and just so happens it works out that that's the area where typically, you know, you don't want to get absolutely into the muscle because you don't want to make a bruise there. You typically stop a little short of the muscle, so you're really injecting a deep dermal, botulinum dose there. And so I think that makes that skin look good and it relaxes the muscle, makes your crow's feet look good. If you relax the upper part of that muscle more than the lower part, you will stop that muscle from pulling down on the brows. And yet you'll leave the lower part, which is an accessory cheek elevator to help hold the cheek up. So, you win three different ways, four different ways if you mm. count the lines mm. And so that's just just one of the things uh, that botulinum can do for you. but frankly, i don't I don't think there's been anything really new for about twenty five or twenty six years. It's the same old concepts, you know, kind of repackaged in new papers, and maybe with some more data, more data is always good i I still write papers, but there hasn't been anything really new to the thinking I think in 26 years and I'm good friends with Joan Crone who's probably the lay person in the states who knows more about plastic surgery than anyone else um and she's always a little bit my advisor we've been friends for a long time and I'm, I was walking with Joan in a plastic surgery meeting and you no know, reporter from W or bizarre one of the beauty mags before the internet sort of crushed publishing a bit and she wanted to know so what's new with botox she used the brand name and i said nothing (laughs) (laughs) and kept walking and jones says michael that's the wrong answer (laughs) you know you've got to repackage these things for the press but that's that's just sort of the way i am i'm a little sometimes a little blunt and direct
1: yeah i was going to ask you michael something that um sort of jake alluded to which is you know we're still talking about the same concepts 20 years later i look at the way the industry has sort of progressed and i'm not from a medical background i've been involved in the business side of of things for a long time and i've had a lot of injectors working for me over the years And, and from my perspective and maybe you guys disagree but keen to hear your thoughts the toxins seem to be glossed over a lot. People come into this industry, they want to be injectors, they learn toxins in a day or two, and then it's all about fillers. It seems like we're not really giving the toxin the, the time and the, I guess, respect that's needed to be able to explore the product or the different products and what they're capable of. And, you know, I've seen well, there's toxins done really badly and I've seen toxins done really well, and it seems that doing either is kind of a bit difficult, and lot, a lot of people just sort of end up being okay at it, but not really, sort of you know, bleeding it dry in terms of all of its capabilities. Do you? Do you? I'm mean, interested to hear what you, what your thoughts are on that, and and why do you think that is, and are we missing something here as injectors? Because a lot of injectors listening to this podcast who are new or in various stages of their career, what do you think about that, and and do you think we can do things better, and, and what are we missing?
2: I agree with you a hundred percent. I I think that's something that we see both in terms of lectures at meetings uh, unfortunately, I think it's something we see when you look at the faces of the people who attend our meetings, right you see some it's so you true. see some funky looking faces there walking around and these are the people that are the injectors and supposed to be the experts and this is you know a, a few years ago I, I I you always have different things that you talk about sometimes and This was it. And it was the fact that everything has been getting better. Now, we're just talking a little about technology before we started this, right? And so, computing technology, RAM, hard drive size doubles every X number of years, right? And prices pretty much stay stable. Televisions are 50 times better than they were years ago, and they're cheaper. Everything is getting better except for our thing and why is that? And I think it's exactly as you said, and I think part of it is an an issue that we have in the States, which I'm I'm not sure exactly what the right answer is, and that is that when toxins go through the FDA approval process, they're done in a very regimented way, right? The globel is five injections, one, two, three, four, five. The crow's feet are three injections, one, two, three always with the same dose, always in the same spots. Now, it's one thing to do that in a study for approval because the FDA, to look at something, that well, they need reproducible data. They need everything done exactly the same way. But unfortunately, that spills over into the real world. I mean, just because the FDA wants it that way, why on earth would you think that that's a good way to inject people? Mm. But unfortunately, that's what happens and it's easier so rather than do the crazy you know thinking of three different things at once and individualizing treatment it's much easier and much faster and if you want to be busy in your clinic it's a lot quicker to just give everyone the same dose and go bang 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 you, you can do a patient in 3 minutes 4 minutes my shortest appointment's 30 minutes mm. uh And so if you do it in the formulaic way, I think of it as almost those genetic squares with recessive and dominant genes. I think if you do it the standardized way, about one quarter of your patients will still look really good. About half your patients will look mediocre and a quarter of your patients will look bad. And unfortunately, it's come into the consciousness of people that this sort of bad, frozen, lowbrow look is a good look or a nice look to have. And I don't think it is. I think everyone looks a little differently. I, I rarely even inject someone's left and right face the same way. Why would you inject everyone the same way? Nobody animates in the same way. And yet that's something that happens and it happens more and more uh, with, as you said, like people who just get into the injection game because it sounds like, oh, it's quick, easy money, right? It's something that's easy to do. I can go take a weekend course or I can do something online in two hours and it's not surgery, it's just an injection and I'm just going to get my drug and start squirting it in people. And if you do that, that's what happens. You end up with mediocre results. And I think you see it. In the busy streets of our major cities when you're walking around mm-hmm. and unfortunately you definitely see it at injector meetings where you see <laughs> i i would you know politely describe them as faces not found in nature right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna remember that one that's a good title for a podcast yeah, we should do faces that
1: not found in nature.
0: um yeah it's funny yesterday i was treating a patient and and she said a line that is said quite often where she was a new patient to me and I said to her, you know, tell me about your aesthetic history. Have you had toxins? Have you had fillers? I explore all of that. And she she basically said, oh, I don't really care where I go for my Botox because that one's easy and I sort of flit around and, you know, I'm more interested in the price. But filler, I'm here, I'm here with you for filler because you know, I heard you're good. Mm. And I kind of said to her, well, it's good until it's bad, right? You know, mm. until you have a problem or autosis or something looks weird – I appreciate from a patient's perspective, you just want your frown line gone.
1: But yeah, it's funny how patients treat it like that. I I guess, is that on us as an industry though? I mean, where would patients get an idea that this is easy and it's quick and it's idiot proof? I mean... You're right.
0: And Michael just said it. I think a lot of people don't dedicate enough time to the consult. mm. It's sort of like, oh, you're here for frown lines. Cool. Lie down. Bang, bang, bang. Done. Five points. Thank you very much. See you in four months. There's no thought to it. It's a very procedural almost monkey injecting kind of way of consulting i'd love to know how you, how you how you do a consult but obviously for a new patient so you know do you have a process are you examining them from from minute one do you do photos um what are you telling yeah. your patient in terms of you know your understanding of toxin because of course they will say to you want oh, my frown lines has gone but we've just said it's a much more you know useful drug than that and you're looking at the whole face mm. neck skin quality and everything so how, how do you run your consults for toxin
2: okay so i approach it as sort of a serious game with many many variables right so the patient comes in and they fill out an intake form like uh, all new patients everywhere and i always read that intake form first and i walk in the room and I say hi, and I start talking to the patients, and I ask them things about their history. And it's interesting because sometimes they get angry and say, "Well, didn't you read my form?" Or, <laughs> you know, "Do I have to really do this again?" And actually, in a way, I'm just sort of winding them up a little because I want to see them animate, and I want to see them talk in a relaxed way with me. When, I'm, you know, no one gets angry when I ask them if they have children or what you know what they do for a living, but. Sometimes they get wound up talking about the history and uh, talking about their allergies and when they've had talks before or fillers or anything else before. And so all that time, I'm looking at them animating normally and a little exaggeratedly. And in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, now what muscles or what muscle groups would I want to relax a little and which ones would I want to relax a little more and if i relax them a little more what parts of other mu- of the same muscle are going to try to compensate and pull harder yeah so the simple game with toxins is well these muscles are moving i'm going to relax them and make them stop moving well that's the beginner's game the advanced and the real game is once you do that what other parts of muscles are going to try to compensate for that weakness you created and how are they going to move different parts of the face so i'm watching them animate and i'm deciding what i want to move less and what in a perfect world i would want to move a little more and again usually if everything works out well it's the muscles that pull things down that i would prefer to weaken a little more and it's the muscles that pull things up I would like to get a little stronger and I'd like them to try to compensate for things and so then at the end then you do look at lines and wrinkles but in my view and you know people can disagree but I see them as secondary to the overall shape of the face and I say this as an example to patients all the time You know, if you're at a cocktail party and someone's 50 feet away from you, you don't see their little crinkles on their face. But you can sort of guess how old they are. Why? Because it's the shape of their face, right? They sort of get a boxy shape as the lower face sort of comes down and they get sort of this square shaped face. When they were younger, they had more of an oval face or a heart shaped face. And so when it comes down to lines versus shape, I'm sort of a shape person. And the simplest thing is the forehead, right? So uh, how many thousands of times have you said, the smoother I make your forehead and the smoother I make those lines, the less I can keep your brows up or the less I can get your brows to come up. Of course, many people want it both ways, but that's a tough thing to do. Mm. Sometimes you can get it that way by really knocking out all the 13 muscle segments that pull down on the brows And by partially weakening the frontalis, you get other parts of the frontalis to pull a little stronger. And so I'm constantly thinking about lines versus shape, up versus down. You know, gravity versus anti-gravity. And then I make that decision in my head. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to weaken the glabella this much, the forehead this much, in these spots, in the crow's feed or the DAOs. Uh, one thing I would say, you know, I do a ton of talks in the lower face. One of the things that unfortunately you still hear sometimes at meetings, although I think it's completely wrong, you will often hear people at the podium say, well, it's really more talks for the upper face and filler for the lower face. And actually, it's completely backwards. I, I wrote an editorial in cosmetic dermatology, I think maybe 15 years ago that that's exactly backwards. If you look at faces, as they age, people lose more volume in their upper face than they do in their lower face. Yet we're pumping syringes of filler into the lower face. And just because it's a little harder around the eyes because that skin is so thin, a little lump bump can look very unpleasant. And the forehead as well, because you know we can make the lines better with tox. We tend not to inject filler so much in the forehead. And I think that's an error, uh, even in the glabella with The caveat that that's a very serious place to inject because we make lines better, we tend not to inject filler there where all those areas get skeletonized over time and they're ignored and we tend to do things sometimes a little bit backwards. So when we go back to talk, so I've decided which muscles I want to weaken how much. And then the next step in my mind is thinking about dose with whichever drug I'm using. And then I think of the dose, and I do it a little differently than people. I like, uh, you would ask me what sort of syringes and gear I use, I like using those 31 gauge fixed needle insulin syringes that are .3, .5, or Mm -hmm. 1.0. And I make, I draw up one of those for each area that I'm working on. So there'll be one syringe for the glabella, one for the forehead, one for each crow's feet, one for the DAO, one for the mentalis, one for the platysma. And if I'm doing around the mouth, one for the orbicularisaurus. If I'm doing masseters, one for each masseter. And so those are all separate. So when I look at that person, and so I've got like this much in the syringe, and I've got to spread it around this much area. So to me, I don't count units in my head. It's more intuitive. I'm a painter and i've got this much paint and i've got this broad area to cover and you know some areas need almost two coats and some just one because you want to differentially weaken that and that's the game yeah. that's and that's not something that you get in sort of a 2-hour teaching course and the other thing i would say when i first started when i started in the summer of 91 out of those first 1000 patients that i injected I saw 81% of them back. I just kept having them come back and looked at them and looked at them. If you don't do that and you're just starting out, I I mean, I don't know how you would expect to get better. Yeah. Um, I've been doing this for over 31 years and I think I'm better than I was last year at doing it. I think my people look, my patients look more natural. I think they get better results. Certain things I'm very passionate about. You know, if you take people, and I have people that I've been doing this for 31 years, and you relax their DAOs, and I would show you what my DAOs look like, but they haven't worked in 25 years. <laughs> because one thing I said, you know, for most people, unless you have a full denture smile, which is you know, like 98% of Hollywood or people you see in movies. But among the rest of us, it's about 2% of us. Unless you have that, the DAO is a good muscle to inject in most patients. What does the DAO do? Well, it mostly helps gravity pull the soft tissues of your lower face towards the floor. What does the platysma bands do? The platysmal bands, you know, they stretch your skin out and also help pull down your lower face. But I know some people like doing a high dose sort of right across the platysma. I understand that can give you in some patients a little temporary benefit. But in the long run, I think that's sort of a not good thing to do to patients. The platysma has a purpose. I'm a plastic surgeon, I do facelifts on Wednesdays, and all plastic surgeons will tell you that platysma supports the deep structures of the neck. It supports the submandibular gland, the lingual nerve, bunch of large blood vessels you don't want to be involved with in the deep fat. And I like that part of the platysma to be strong. So I figure if I'm just injecting the bands, the bands are the strong parts pulling things down and stretching out the skin, bad things. Then the flat areas, which are supporting the structures in the deep neck, I think will pull a little harder. And I believe they do from looking at them. And so over years of injecting people, just their platysmal bands and their DAOs, I will absolutely tell you, they do not age like their peers. They do not age like normal people. Their necks age tremendously slowly. And it's it's just nice to be able to do that for people, especially long term. It's not just a quick fix.
1: Wow. I think uh, the term there are levels to this game could not be truer than listening to the last 10 minutes of what you were saying, Michael. And I think, you know, I see a lot of new injectors come into the industry and, you know, you you see um, them treating patients, you know, for the first time. And quite often that first treatment, they're very nervous. They're getting to know the patient's face. We've got pharmaceutical companies that obviously, you know, without wanting to be, you know, defamatory or negative, you know, their business is selling product. And you look at the training that these injectors are armed with it's very rudimentary it's you know bang 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 get them in get them out where can new injectors learn what what it is that you're talking about where can they access this information how can they become more detail oriented and you know extract the absolute maximum that is possible out, out of this drug um, and i guess well, you know are we potentially heading to a world where you know, toxins become sub-specialized. I mean, if you look at, say, the orthopedic game or the plastics game where you've got someone that just does shoulders or just does knees or a plastic surgeon that maybe just does facelifts, do you think that there is a future for people becoming sub-specialized in like isolated aesthetic tri- injectable treatments? Because it is once you start going down that well, you realize how much you don't know and how much more there is available to be achieved. What do you you think? What do you think about that? And yeah, how do we get people doing it better?
2: For that last part, uh, there are two things pulling each way, Mm. right? And as you said, in the rest of medicine, certainly in orthopedics, everyone has become ultra subspecialized. It seems right. In plastic surgery, there's still sort of that big divide between an aesthetic or cosmetic plastic surgeon and a reconstructive plastic surgeon, and You know, I'm a plastic surgeon who does all cosmetic plastic surgery. But uh, I'm fortunate. I've been in practice 31 years as I got busier. I I had two things I could do. I could sort of hire employee docs on. Right. Or I could stop doing things I didn't like. And I'm not someone who wants to be in the business of managing people. It's sort of not my thing. And I don't think I'd be good at it. And so what I, what I did was I just stopped doing things that I didn't like so much. So I think the first operation I stopped doing was breast reduction and then breast augmentation and then liposuction, which you can do well or do poorly, but I I found a little boring Mm. at times. And then I stopped doing tummy tucks. And so basically I am all in on the face. So I do eyelid surgery, face and neck lifts, and noses. And it makes sense that I would then inject things in this area. So while there's the pull one way to be hyper-specialized, which is definitely happening in parts of medicine, but to treat the face well, it sort of demands that you be able to do a few things, right? If you're going to be injecting faces, clearly I think you have to inject toxin fill Actually, because there's an interplay between the two. You know, sometimes you will change your tox or fill injection based on what you're doing with the other one, right? If you're going to raise someone's cheekbones a little or do something like that, you know that the tox will be different because the muscles are affected. Myomodulation is a real thing. When you put filler around muscle, you change how that muscle moves. Well, so does toxin. So it makes sense to sort of have one person do that at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So that you can have control of that. And if you're going to be working on the soft tissues and muscles of the face and even building up the facial skeleton where it recedes over time, well, if you're not treating the skin, you're not treating the whole person. So then you sort of have to get into peels and laser and skincare a little bit too. So I understand there's the pull on the one hand to get hyper-specialized, but then to treat the whole patient, even in just one area like the face, I think you kind of have to be able to do a little bit of everything in those areas to treat the patient Mm -hmm. in the best way that they can be treated.
0: I wanted to let the listeners know that um, we originally planned this podcast to be something quite different. And I'm just sat here sort of in awe of what we're saying and I'm loving this conversation I'm on the edge of my seat and so we're just going to carry on with this kind of conversation because I just think we really need to explore this it's so important to um, get the consultation and the understanding of what we're doing with these products properly and like you said David um, you know when we train for pharma companies I'm a trainer I know Michael has done thousands of trainings in his time we're very limited with what we can say because of the on-label way of doing things, the compliance way of doing things, and in America, the FDA way of doing things. And it it almost deliberately puts a strange handcuff on your hand as a trainer, and you're actually telling them about 20% of the possibilities, or yeah. probably even less. Yeah. So I guess the answer is you, you have to go to third parties. You have to mm. speak to people like Michael or you know, learn from experience and mentors mm. and see your patients, learn from them. That's what Michael did. He, yeah. he looked at them. He, I'm sure you made many mistakes in your time. I'd love to ask you when, when you were first playing oh. around with the toxin in the lower face, particularly, I mean, can you tell us some of the stuff ups and, and what
2: was said and what you did? I, I, I would tell you right now uh, for about 20, 25 years, I've been giving a teaching course To the Aesthetic Plastic Surgery Society here in the States. Actually, there are a lot of international members too, but it's the American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. And rather than just do like a one, two, three rote course, I changed it a few years ago. And I get mostly positive comments, a few negatives, but it's completely different. In a way, it's a little like my journey through injection injecting people especially with toxin and then with fillers and at each key point at each key point where i focus for a few minutes it's about something that i did that turned out poorly Mm -hmm. or that i thought turned out poorly so it's, it's basically two hours of like my 20 worst results and how they changed what i do all the way through You know, when I realized I was over injecting, well, early on, over injecting the frontalis, then you look at the orbicularis oculi and, you know, you realize that here's here's another thing that is, I have many things that are pet peeves of mine. First of all, you have to know your anatomy. If you're putting a needle on someone, right? That's a given. You have to understand your anatomy. And so I would. I absolutely recommend for people who are not plastic surgeons who you know, I, I look at the undersurface of people's faces uh, regularly, right? If you don't do that, you should definitely go to a meeting where there's a cadaver lab and do that a few times, uh, right? I remember how much that helped me when I was first starting out looking inside everyone's forehead. That's It's just a tremendous thing and trying to get better you absolutely have to see your patients afterwards if you're starting out. and But it's not the ones that turn out okay that make you better. It's the ones that turn out sort of not so great <laughs> mm-hmm. that make you better Yeah, uh, because you realize that you've done something wrong. And if you didn't bring that person back, you would think that you did everything just fine and you wouldn't fix it and you wouldn't go forward in a little different direction. Even if it's not a major change, you can always get things a little better. I'd like to think that you know that it's possible to do a perfect injection. I'll tell you right now, I've never seen a perfect injection. I've never done a perfect injection. It doesn't mean that's not my goal. It's my goal every single time. Uh, but I just keep thinking that we can get better and make things better and longer lasting and help slow down the aging process and keep people normal looking. The best compliment you can have is a patient comes back and says, oh, you know, I was at a party and someone said, oh, you look great, but you know, you really should start doing some Botox <laughs> or something like that. Well, that's perfect, right? Because <laughs> yeah, she does not look like all the other people that look like statues. And you know, this is another thing I say all the time, it, as these things came out slowly, things changed. So First, we had tox, and then so you had all these people that were over and they looked like statues and it just looked ridiculous. Um, you know, a little bit is good. A lot is terrible when you when you do things like that. And then filler comes out and then everyone started having these enormous pillow faces. Right. Well, before that, we just had plastic surgery. And when you just had plastic surgery and you weren't addressing the volume changes in the face over time, and you were just thinking that all of aging is gravity, and you're pulling things up, you could have these people that look like they're in a wind tunnel, mm. right, with just their surgery. And then laser has been around for a long time. And there are people out there who say, oh, I don't go for that other stuff. And I'll never have surgery. I just get laser done. Well, if you just get laser done, you're going to have jowls, you're going to have a sagging neck, but your skin is going to look bizarrely shiny and smooth and again none of those things are found in nature in a perfect world you slow down motion in certain areas where slowing down motion looks good and slows down the aging process you're adding volume to parts of the face like the superomedial and infralateral orbit and the mandibular border that we know over time the bone resorbs and so you're building that up also, over time, gravity is pulling everything down. All these injections that we're talking about don't, act, don't really get under and delaminate the planes of the face and lift them up like surgery does. And if you ignore the skin, well, then you've got this nice shaped face, but like this old fisherman's face skin <laughs> stuck on top of it. And that's not a good look either. It's, it's doing a little bit of everything in the appropriate way gets people to look their best without looking strange. People start to look strange when you pick one of those four things, and you do one of those four things to excess, hmm. and you don't treat the whole patient.
1: You mentioned that a big part of your development was when when your patients came back for review was looking at how you would adjust. And we struggle to get patients back these days because they're busy or they don't think it's serious or we perhaps as an industry have dumbed down Botox to the point where patients don't take it seriously. So how can they get patients back in for these reviews because it does take time and you know maybe zooms is is not ideal but maybe better than nothing and what's your what's your sort of um narrative that you tell patients to make them understand how important it is to come back and let you review
2: them oh you're right zoom is better than nothing but i when i talk to my patients again i i spend some time with them it's not a quickie in and out thing I have a conversation with them. I talk about the plan, what we're going to do, and I don't just give them a plan for that day. I give them a plan for the future. I talk about, and because I'm a plastic surgeon that does a lot of injections, I tend to get those patients that are in between because they sort of know that if, you know, I'm not going to say, uh, you know, you shouldn't get surgery, let's just inject all the time. And I'm also not the guy It says, forget about the needles, let's just do surgery. It doesn't matter. I want to take care of that patient as best as humanly possible. So you build a relationship with the patient in that first visit. And then I will tell them what the plan is for that visit and subsequent visits. And then I'll say, this is what I think would be best for you. Now I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do, but nobody's perfect. I would like to see you back in about two or three weeks, and if there's something I can make better, I will do it for you. And there's certainly no charge for that. You know, I don't want someone walking around looking not as good as I could make them look, and have, you know, have them tell someone I'm their doctor. That would that would that would be horrifying to me. So it's asking them to come back. Part of it, I think unfortunately is a business side of it well there's always a business side to this and it is how people charge for Mm. toxin now i have always 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 been an area charger and the reason for that i mean i had to decide a long time ago what i was going to do and the reason for that was i didn't want someone coming to me like I was just dispensing a drug to them. I didn't want them to pay according to the drug. I wanted them you know, to pay for me. They're coming to me because I'm the one injecting them, not because of the drug that is being injected. I'm not just filling up a gas tank and you're paying for the gasoline, right? You're paying for the person who puts a few drops of gasoline here and there and doesn't put it where it would get you in trouble. And because of that, you know, there's an implicit sort of deal in a patient's head when I'm working on an area, and that is, I'm going to make that area or the two areas or the four areas as good as I can possibly make them. So it doesn't matter how much I need, doesn't matter how much I don't need. I I don't think about that. I, I just think about making them look as good as they can. And when i explain it that way to patients they're willing to come back and they want to look as good as they can even though they are busy now the problem is if you're a unit charger well you're charging by the units in a way if someone comes back and they need another five units or x amount of units well there's a disincentive to come back because now they're being charged again um mm. yeah. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not saying one way is right and one way is wrong. There are two ways to do, many different ways to do anything. But I think that being an area charger has helped me to bring my patients back over the years.
1: Oh, it's so I, interesting. I, I feel like we could sit here for like 10 hours with you, Marco, because every question that we ask you, I think of another 20. <laughs> Same. And I just wanted to interject for one second and take this in a business direction and talk to all those people who are listening to this at the moment who've been asking questions of us over the last few months, because we do do a lot of business-related discussions as well, Michael, just for your benefit. And we're reaching this stage in the industry where we've almost commoditized ourselves to a certain extent. And I'm not in the States, probably not as much yet, but certainly here in Australia, we've got these chain clinics, which I've been part of and I guess, in some ways facilitated part of the problem where we have commoditized ourselves and we are now heading into a period where um, this industry, particularly in Australia and and many parts of the Western world, is is consolidating. We've been in this really amazing period of of growth and we've had great economic conditions and now you've got things tightening, um, you've got much more... uh, options for people, many more providers in the marketplace. And people are saying, how do I, how do, you know, everyone's trying to work out the next fancy marketing campaign that they can do, or the next new product that they want to be, you know, known as pioneering. But what you're saying, Michael, and correct me if I'm wrong, and Jake, as well is this is first principles thinking, get your basics right. If you want to differentiate yourself, Mm -hmm. get your basics right. Focus on the little things, you know, like toxin, start charging differently, start making it your focus, start, don't do anything average, get your basics
0: right. I mean, going back to what michael said about looking at the whole face for toxin you know of course these are drugs and and it has to be appropriate but if you look at your patient's face there's no doubt a need for possible mentalis platysma dao etc etc and if you're not doing that regularly you could double your business and income just by doing it more regularly so just from a pure money perspective concentrate on your Botox or or your toxin, should I say. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's interesting. I moved from the UK, Michael, maybe seven, eight years ago now. And in the UK, it's very common to charge per area. And when I came here, I was like, oh, this is weird units. And I just couldn't get my head around it. And now I've been here so long, I've desensitized and now find areas weird because I think one of the reasons why is the actual product for us to buy, the cost price is actually quite expensive here versus the UK. It's, I mean, it's so cheap that it doesn't matter if you give them three, five units when they come back for a top up. So I just think I completely understand what you're saying, but I just think the market somehow dictates how, how our consultations and reviews Mm. sometimes work. It's odd because I've worked in two different countries and you know, it, Botox is just well, more precious. Here. It's more expensive.
2: I, I I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, if there's a doc out there that thinks they're immune to market forces, they they got another thing coming, right? Nobody is immune to market forces. But in how I would how I look at it, there are many ways to try to differentiate yourself, right? You can try to differentiate yourself on price. It's a tough game. And, you know, they're almost, there's almost always someone cheaper somewhere. You can try to differentiate yourself on like marketing giveaways and coupons and things like that. But again, that's a tough road to hoe. You can try to differentiate yourself by being, uh, you know, now the thing would be to be a social media star, which is fine, but you know what, there are a lot of people now that are social media stars, and there were people who started doing it, you know, 10 or so years ago that are way ahead of the game. But now, certainly big chains, that's a tough way to differentiate yourself too. And so for me, when I think about things like that, it always comes down to try to differentiate myself by quality. I mean, I just try to do it better. Uh, better than I did it last year. Better than you know I, I used to do it. Better than the person down the street. I put a great deal of time and effort and thought into this, and I know that if you're seeing you know 80 patients a day and squirting them, you know, that's not really happening. And I know that there are market forces, and there it's done differently in different parts of the world. And I would say even here in the States, it's beginning to get commoditized, I would say in Florida, Southern (laughs) California, and maybe parts of Texas. And again, I, I don't think anyone is, or anything is beyond commoditization. There will always be a few practices that are boutique practices and will be okay. But I think most mom and pop injectors who are doing okay, are going to have sort of a rude awakening in four or five years when everything sort of changes here. Um, But uh, again, those forces, you can shake your fist at the sky and say that it's not right, and you wish they weren't happening. It's not changing anything, it's still coming right there. And so what can you do to differentiate yourself? And what can you do to stand out from the pack? Well, you know, I would say you could make some outlandish, goofy TikToks, but I don't think it's possible that out, outlandish the people, that, yeah. the ones I've already seen. yeah. So I would say the the thing to do is try to be better than the person down the street or around the corner. Such a good point. And we, yeah.
0: we get yeah. questions all yeah. the time from our listeners. What can I do? How do I get more patients? What do I do with my prices? And you know just just be better just offer the best you can be be really nice and offer them that follow-up because most people yeah. don't um' a good sort of segue to to ask you then because I remember when I met you a few months ago Michael here we had a great chat about where we are now with sort of having portfolios of different toxins you know in our fridges and you know we were going to talk about a specific toxin on this talk but we'll save that for another podcast now but Why should we have so many toxins? I mean, you know, the the layperson doesn't really understand the difference between them. They just want what they're going to call Botox, even if they're getting something else. Um, They don't often really recognize all the things that we've discussed. They're, They're just there for wrinkle relaxing. And, um, you know, and yet we've got this price war going on, and more toxins coming and novel toxins, longer lasting, shorter lasting. so w- w- what do you f- have in your fridge first of all, and okay.
2: why, I guess? All right, so uh, as I said, I'm sort of an injectable guy, right? And so people seek me out for injections and plastic surgery, and I was a part of I'll, I'll go through the. Drugs in order in the states as they've been approved. I was a part of the Botox launch, then I was part of the Disport launch, then I was part of the Xiamen launch, then I was part of the Juvo launch, and now we just had one approved, but it hasn't uh, started shipping yet. The launch hasn't happened yet, but I'm working with them on their launch.
0: Is it called Daxify?
2: And that's Daxi. Daxi, uh, Daxi, Daxi yeah. botulinum toxin. Yeah. Uh, Taxify will be the brand name. And so I've been a part of the launch all the way through of those products. I have a large, stable patient base of injectable patients. There are many patients who believe that one or the other drug is better for them. And there are many people, uh, I mean, everyone sort of craves newness in a way. And so I still have patients that, came to me during the Disport launch. So they love Disport, And so they that's what they want. I have patients that came to me during the Xeomin launch and they came to me, or the Juvo launch. And so because I'm an injectable person, I carry all of them now. And part of that is the fact that I don't churn a lot of people. You know, I do see new patients, but I only see about, you know, maybe about two new patients a month because my patients tend to stick with me. So I've got all these patients that really like one drug over another. Now, some came to me and said, and this is an unfortunate story, they went somewhere, they had a very unfortunate result. And as always, the injector does not wanna blame themselves. they blame, of course, what's in the syringe. And they go somewhere else and they have a better result, and so that's the drug they want. Mm we have to realize that we're doing two things here yes everything we do should be driven by science but we're also sort of practicing a weird form of psychiatry with needles (laughs) right we are trying to make people happy and more specifically we're trying to make people feel good about themselves you know the most common thing is as someone gets older like i i feel like i Not like I look in the mirror and they just want to feel that way again. They just want to have their self-confidence back and not be worried about things on their face. And so because of that, if someone really, really thinks that one drug works better for them and I see no advantage medically to another drug, well, that's what I'm going to give them. I want them to be happy. And then you think about the psychology of moving people from one drug to another, right? So say you've got someone who's very happy and has been coming to you and getting drug A for 15 years. And so they're coming to you and all of a sudden drug B is launched and it's out there and you know, you've got that they want you to use it. Well, if you start to have a conversation with that person and you want to move them to drug B, Already in their head, they're thinking there's something wrong because they're happy with drug A. And so if you do that, it had better be perfect because you're already predisposing them to being unhappy with what you do because they're probably rightly in a lot of cases guessing that you're getting some sort of special deal or there's a reason that you have that you're moving them that's not the same reason that the patient has in their mind. Then again, if you have someone who's been on a drug for a while and, you know, they're a little unhappy, they're getting diminishing results, and part of that's due to the fact that they're aging, but they think, well, you know, I think that, you know, drug B just isn't doing it for me anymore, and then you try a different drug with them, they're, you're already in their mind setting them up to be happy because they think it's that other thing and they think the new drug will work better for them. Um, now, I, I know this sounds strange, but it's all about keeping people happy mm. and making them feel good about themselves. Now, of course, when I'm talking like this, it, it's assuming that each drug scientifically would be a good choice for that patient, right? otherwise uh, then then you're totally out of the game.
0: So in summary, <clears throat> with one of your new patients a month, you've got more license to do whatever. So if there's a new thing that comes out that you, you know, want to use, it kind of doesn't matter because they've got no preconception of toxin, they just, you know, they're just coming to you for the first time, but if you change someone for 10 years on botox to another brand, it's going to of course, it's going to be a different effect, maybe onset, longevity, feeling, blah, blah, blah. And it will just be different. Even if it's good, it's different. Yeah. So, yeah, mm. I agree.
1: Mm-hmm. And I guess as well, you as an injector, not knowing that patient's face with this particular treatment, it might not be as perfect as you would do it when you do it with the product that you would normally use on that patient. There's mm. always that feeling out process, I guess, potentially, if you've got, you know, because what you were saying, Michael, you know, different products, different dilutions, slightly different techniques. So, yeah. I understand that.
2: I I wanted to ask I mean yeah, well when what when, when a new when a new product comes out sorry, and very often I, again I'm I'm involved with all these companies I'm involved with all the toxin companies in the states and all the ones I know that are trying to come in and so typically I'll be an investigator and consultant so I'll have some experience with the drug but then even when it comes out what I will typically do I I have sort of a regular stable people that I sometimes enroll in clinical trials, that I sometimes do when I'm doing use when I'm doing a live injection somewhere, uh, people that trust me and maybe just don't have a lot of, uh, you know, financial flexibility to come to me regularly, and I will inject them until I get really good with the drug, and then I will be fine to use it regularly in my practice, and they understand that that's the deal. And you know, I've, uh, every every time I've injected my first patient, uh, full disclosure, usually it's one of my sisters. But <laughs> when I inject the first patient with a drug, I, I tell them that. You know? What what is the
0: purpose? You can only speak from your own opinion. What's the purpose of new toxins coming on the market? I mean, what void are we filling? I guess is my question.
2: Well, it's interesting. And what is the purpose? The purpose is, I would say this, uh, I think we can all agree that there is a certain similarity to most of the toxins that are out there, right? Certainly when you compare them to fillers. Fillers, you've got one really soft filler and an incredibly robust filler way over here. The toxins are all sort of right here, mm-hmm. Right. Now, now, I would not say that they're identical. You know, there's, there are little differences between them, but they're different and having, having more options is never a negative thing. Now, do I think that every practitioner out there needs to carry six or seven toxins? Probably not. They should carry as many toxins as they really feel that they can do a great job with if you know if if that's just one or two then that's what they should do if it's just one then that's what they should do yeah. but they should be confident that whatever toxin they're using they understand it they understand the almost idiosyncrasies of it and how to inject it well mm. and then i i think that that's fine now, if you talk to people and what they want it's uh, I always think uh, surveys are interesting. Um, I think they're interesting because they're an insight into the human mind and human nature, not so much for what they say as what they don't. You know, For instance, if you were, uh, and I, I'd seen a survey a few years ago, and it was people who were happy with toxin, and there were a list of variables and they had to rank them from one to 10, and up top was longevity. They wanted it to last as long as possible, and number four, I think, was beautiful natural result mm. yeah <laughs> well, if you think about that, so someone would rather have a less beautiful and less natural result as long as it lasted longer, probably not you know that's just something how people answer questions but not how they live their lives and i I equate that back you know to The thing with airlines when the internet became big. And if you, uh, and all these surveys are the same over many years. And again, I fly a lot and you ask people what they don't like about airlines. And they say they hate extra charges for luggage Mm. or meals and all these other things. Yet when an airline kept those things and they were a few dollars more, nobody went to that airline. They went (laughs) and did, they went and flew on someone else, which is why all these charges are separate now. Mm. I, I, I just find those things fascinating.
1: Well, I think from a commercial perspective, can you imagine if there was no, if Botox was the only game in town? How much would they be charging, and how many people would be getting treatments? It'd still be probably a treatment that's only accessible to a very small number of people, and there'd only be a very small number of injectors. So, increased competition not only can drive price down, but it increases market share. Mm-hmm. It increases the, the entire size of the industry. So, yeah. yeah. So,
0: I, I, I guess I meant from a very yeah boring wrinkle relaxing yeah. facial structuring perspective i mean you know you just said michael that they're, they're they're similar they're not the same but they're similar same same so, but different so yeah you know, <laughs> so, so to have another product x let's call it that comes in units similar to the market leader and it looks the same it sort of acts the same last similar time it's kind of like well what are we doing here you know, unless yep. it's unless it's so cheap that it becomes attractive mm. for for people
2: to buy, obviously. Yeah. Well, you know, I but I, I if they want to keep bringing out new products, I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, we don't. You don't have to carry them all. You can pick and choose. You know, we're we're lucky that you know when we go into a supermarket in our countries. There are you know twenty kinds of rice or twenty <laughs> kinds of pasta. You know, we 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 can pick whatever we want. It's not like we're you know behind the iron curtain, you know, a, a long time ago, and you <laughs> had waited in line for one thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think choice is always okay as long as you know how to use that choice well, um, and you can use it to help patients feel better and look better Mm.
0: yeah i asked that question because a lot of our injectors are new or you know got a few years experience and it just confuses them the more products that come on the market the more they put their hands in there and go "Ah, i don't know what i'm doing which one and you know it can be confusing so i think you basically said
1: back yourself learn with one if you're happy great if not then try another one Mm. Couple more questions for you, Michael. We know we've kept you for almost an hour and a half, and then all the technical issues we had at the beginning. So we know you're a, you're a busy man. So we won't keep you for too much longer. But just I guess some a few final things. Um, I might let Jack ask Jake ask about resistance because that's an interesting topic. We may want to
0: well, yeah, that, kind
1: of talk about maybe not enough to. This is
0: almost impossible to, yeah. to answer in a few sentences. But I, I just a super super high level, I guess comment rather than um, commentary. Regarding resistance, I think we all agree it's real, it happens. What's your understanding of the prevalence
1: and what can we do yep. to avoid it? Well, and also, sorry, um, I don't mean to hijack your question, but um, percentage of real resistance versus injector error, and you kind of alluded to it in your previous answer, yes. You know how
2: much of it's actually yep. real
1: and how much of it is just people being in- unconsciously incompetent or just not honest
2: with themselves and their <laughs> patients? That is a, those are great questions, and that's something that's changed over time. Yeah, you know, just because I was sort of that guy in the '90s, I was referred a lot of issues, a lot of problems. You know, I was referred patients where they were injected, and the only drug then was Botox, and my Botox didn't work, or or people had a droopy eyelid from Botox. So I studied all of these things, and back then it was 99.99% injector error. <laughs> Um, You know, people would tell me, oh, the doc, I went back and they put more in and nothing happened and they told me I must be immune and I said, well, let's just see. And I would inject them and they would look great, right? Either So either they were a bad injector or, you know, for an X dollar special, they they took (laughs) three units and squirted it in (laughs) three different areas where you're not going to get much of a result. And so I'll tell you personally, uh, um, a few years ago, I passed a hundred thousand injections that I'd done myself. Not via extenders or employee docs that I'd done myself. And of the patients that I've injected primarily, I had two non-responders, um, out of, you know, very many. So it certainly isn't an epidemic, but it's certainly not zero. Now that being said, over the last five or six years, I get sent people and I will see people for certain friends of mine in the city or from out of town who call or email me and I'll, I'll see their people. And more and more people are becoming non-responders. And so the question is, why is this? Well, there are two obvious answers that jump out at you. And I think one is more likely than the other. One is well, as time goes on, people have a larger cumulative dose, right? They've gotten more tox injected over time. And that may be it, but I, I think that's probably not the main driver. I, I wrote a commentary on a rat murine antibody model, I think, in 09. And what's interesting, if you had a sensitive enough machine to measure antibodies, and let's say botulinum toxins are foreign proteins with the pandemic, everyone's sort of antibody more aware than they used to be and aware of foreign proteins and vaccinations and things like that. Well, you can almost think of every time you get botulinum is getting a vaccination because it's a foreign protein yeah. injected in your body. And if you had a sensitive enough machine, we've proven this with rat models, but I, I would I would bet that it happens with humans too. There's a little antibody response. And so if you put more, you get a little more of an antibody response. But I think it's more the interval. And what has happened, you know, when I see my patients, I don't like to give touch-ups. My rule is, as I said, I bring people back and I try to make them look better. If it's someone, and sometimes there are people that, well, I can get it for free. I'm just going to go back and I just want a top-up just because maybe it'll last longer. And I will not do that because I think it's medically incorrect. I And so that I may lose the patient, the patient may get mad at me, but it's not something I would do. I will do a touch-up on someone if I think something looks askew or I can make something noticeably better, which I think is a better way to look at that. I think now, as you mentioned before about you know, chains and, you know, different and people going from injector to injector. And so I call it the fractionation of care. And so patients don't really know this. The injectors should know this, but often don't. And I've seen a bunch of people that, you know, they went to Dr. A and they didn't like the result. They went back for a touch up a week later. He put another five units in. They went back three days later, he put another five units in. Four days later, put another five units in. Then they went because they weren't happy to the chain down the street and they put 20 units in like two weeks later and then they came back and then they did it again. And then they went somewhere else a month later. And they're looking at talks like it's filler. Yeah. They're looking at it like there's a gas tank that's getting empty and we need to fill it up. And that's not the way you should look at talks. I Tell my patients I want them, at a minimum, to try to stay out for three months, unless something looks askew. Um, there, there are always exceptions to that, but not certainly not routine exceptions. And I also tell them not to break things up. Uh, it's it's amazing. I get people that have been going to doctors for years, and they they inject their glabella, and then they come back in two weeks and inject their forehead as a routine. And then two weeks later inject their crow's feet and then and then you've got everything out of sync and you've got people getting something injected once a month and of course we're going to get more non-responders mm, right yeah. uh, i mean you're you're almost vaccinating people against botulinum toxin when you do that mm. so it has happened it is not not our imagination mm. that was i mean it was never an epidemic It was. Never zero, but I think that number is clearly getting higher and higher, and I think it's due to the fractionation of care. Mm, that
0: is pretty much what we practice here, or, yeah. or at least most of the injector friends I know. Three-month interval, mm. top-ups at the bare minimum, only if you need
1: it. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty sensible. Yeah, be interesting to see what happens with this new toxin that comes out that lasts two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to do to people's <laughs> fractionated care okay yeah so, um broad question for you Michael. maybe sort of finish up you know you're one of the the godfathers of this industry and we're, we're honored to have you here and, and share your thoughts with us and i guess it'd be remiss if we didn't ask you what you think is coming next where do you think the industry's going what are you most excited about what are you most concerned about
2: hmm. well the industry as a whole tends to follow the desires of people and uh, you know, everything is sort of doing more with less. You know, when I say the industry, I I think of all of it from lasers and peels to plastic surgery. You know, already things like liposuction, which were very invasive procedures. Uh, I used to do a ton of liposuction, you know, from 30 to 15 years ago. And now there are more and more machines that can kill fat cells over time without making an incision in people. Um, There are more and more techniques that involve less invasive surgery. Um, One of the things, one of the companies that I've worked for for 17 years, um, it's shelved right now, but had a toxin program where they were trying to get toxin through the skin into crow's feet. So you could make crow's feet better. Without putting a needle through people's skin. And, you know, I think that if they were able to get that indication, that it's something that might be okay, maybe certainly for perioral lines, because there's no fat between the skin and muscle there, and possibly forehead, maybe platysma. But, you know, I think that's where things are headed. Everyone wants better, longer lasting results with less of a procedure. And with less downtime. Yeah. Right. Now that's the holy grail. You know, when you, you look at things and you, you realize that this is how marketing positions things. Right. If you want to get a million hits on the web, you have a product and it's a non surgical blank and write your favorite plastic surgery operation <laughs> there. And everyone's, you're going to get lots of clicks on that. So I think that's where we're headed. I think, in a business sense, we are going to be uh, a bit commoditized and run by chains, sort of like hospitals were. Right when I started, you know, I, I graduated medical school in '84. All all these hospitals were independent. Now, in the big cities in America, there are like two or three chains in each city that own twelve hospitals there. Mm. It's just sort of the nature of things. And I think that's going to happen with our industry, too, with a few holdouts. There's always room for a very boutique sort of practice. But the overwhelming amount of practices will, will get sort of eaten up and you're either going to join, join in or you're going to have a rough time. And, and really, that applies to everyone, even the boutique people. No one is unaffected by market forces. And that's just something that's coming. Yeah. Thank you
0: so much for your insights. Uh, We will definitely have to get you back for the actual plan podcast that we had. (laughs) Don't worry about the timing. We'll wait for you. We know you're a busy man. Um, Yeah, I'm just, I I could have gone on for hours. I've got so many
1: more questions. Absolutely. Um, When can we get you back? (laughs) (laughs) We'll speak.
2: We'll speak, Michael. Well, uh, I know. I, I mean, I'm I'm flying a couple of times a week but, wow. uh, through now. The fall winter meeting season and ad board season is a little crazy. Yeah, uh, towards January February sort of slows down a yeah. little. Yeah, well, okay. We'll definitely stay in touch. Yeah. Will, will you be going to AMWC? I probably will not. All right. Um, well, I'll wave I, as I, I fly I do, over. I always do the AMWC in Monte Carlo, the father of them all. That's I've done that 16 years in a row, but we'll, we'll be somewhere. Oh, yeah.
0: right. Well, I'll be there as well. And we David might- will be there as well. Yeah, I think we might see you in, in Monaco. Is it Monaco? Yeah, Monaco. Yeah. This yeah. Year. We'll see you there. All right. We'll say goodbye there, Michael. But thank you again for your time. And uh, we shall be in touch soon. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you both. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon.